Welcome to another edition of Bridging the Gap. And today, I am honored to have Maya Philipson, another Investment News 40 Under 40 part of this podcast. And Maya's background and her initiative and her mission is nothing less than inspiring. Adesina Capital is the firm that Maya runs, and it's all focused on bridging between social justice movements and financial markets and social justice investing strategy. It is the forefront of social justice investing. It's the forefront of ESG, of impact investing. And Maya has such a background because she went from building a very successful wealth management firm into starting an institutional investment firm. And the impact that she is making on the industry is there. And we talk about everything about what is holding back ESG? What are the blockers to doing it the right way? And how are they overcoming it? And Maya's background comes from the teachings and the lessons of her grandfather, which are incredible. You will not want to miss this one because Maya has so much wisdom to share and Adesina is on the forefront of making some positive change in our industry. This is Bridging the Gap with your host, Matt Reiner. Maya, it's such a pleasure to have you on Bridging the Gap. Thank you for taking time out of your busy day to join us. How are you doing? How's everything out on the West Coast? As they say, the West Coast is the best coast. How's everything out in San Francisco? Well, I believe the West Coast is absolutely the best coast, but I do have to tell you, Matt, that today it is cold and stormy and foggy here in San Francisco, and I'm looking forward to some cozy times just sitting here talking with you because I do not want to be outside in this terrible storm. (laughs) Well, it is a little bit better here where we are in Atlanta. So we have clear skies, but it's cold. In Atlanta, we don't like, uh, you know, anything below 50 is really freezing for us. So yeah, I agree with that. I agree with that. (laughs) And I'm Maya Philipson. I use she, her pronouns, and I am the co-founder and the chief operations officer at Adesina Social Capital. And I'm in beautiful stormy San Francisco on Ohlone land. I love it. I love it. And we got connected from 40 under 40, which again, congratulations Thank to you. you on that. You too. And you know, your background and your purpose and, and your firm's purpose is u- unique, but needed. And it's so amazing in sense of what y'all are, are after. And that's why I'm excited to drill into that. And you know, on this podcast, we always like to bring guests that have different purposes, different backgrounds, different missions, because I think we can all learn from each other. And I, I think that, you know, our listeners are going to be able to learn a ton from from you. And why don't we start with, you know, your journey, right, to where you are today with Adesina and leading the charge. I mean, tell us what led you to this point to, to running this firm? Absolutely. That's a great question. You know, I think one of the things that's really powerful about Adesina's story is that my business partner, Rachel Robichetti and I, we actually ran a boutique wealth management firm in San Francisco for almost 16 years. My journey started a little bit before that. I had a family that was quite involved in finances. My grandfather in particular, who I was very close to, his name was Joe, Grandpa Joe. He was a chemist by training, but he thought the stock market was fascinating. It was just, it was sort of a hobby of his. And he would tell me, I'm his oldest grandchild, um, and he would tell me things about stocks and bonds and 401ks. And I thought that everyone got that kind of education from their family. And when I went to college and after I graduated, my friends and I started getting real jobs and we started making money. And I realized that so many people didn't 
get that kind of education from their family, I didn't even realize how privileged I was. And it really sparked a desire in me to become a financial planner. And so after I graduated from college, I moved into studying finance, financial planning. I met my business partner, Rachel, and we grew our firm with Robichotti and Philipson. We grew that over almost 16 years to a medium-sized RIA. We we had a very sort of boutique focus. Uh, We're located here in San Francisco. We worked primarily with women. Over 80% of our clients were women um, and primarily with queer families. And so we had kind of a niche and we loved our work. I mean, I, I loved being a financial planner. It was incredibly gratifying to me emotionally but also seeing the change that I could make in my clients' lives and seeing that echo in their communities and them being able to teach their children in some of the ways that my family had taught me, it, it was just incredibly gratifying. And I really, really loved that work. So the question is, why did I stop and start another firm? <laughs> yeah, you, you had this passion, this emotional connection. You're, you're getting fulfillment and, and you have a purpose. And so what led you to change? Absolutely. So one of the things that we saw in our practice, because as I said, we had a, a kind of interesting niche. We worked with a lot of people who were very socially responsible. You know, there are people who are really involved in their communities. They gave back a lot, both monetarily, but with time and supported their families, their communities, their faith groups, their nonprofit organizations. And so we really did a lot with socially responsible, with SRI or ESG investing. And we had a lot of our clients invested that way. And we, like many financial planners, you know, we spent a good amount of our time doing financial planning. We spent a good amount of our time managing investment accounts, but we kind of had sort of hands in both pots and that's pretty common. But what we realized is that as we learned more and more about what socially responsible investment options were kind of available to our clients who weren't multimillionaires, they couldn't necessarily do private placement or venture capital. You know, they were ordinary people. So they were looking at investing in kind of conventional mutual funds or ETFs, that the options that we saw out in the market didn't necessarily meet what was important to our clients. And they didn't necessarily have the point of view that Rachel and I had, uh, particularly around the intersectionality of some of the issues that we cared about. So not Mm -hmm. just funds that were climate friendly, but funds that were climate friendly and looked at women's issues and looked at things of racial justice. So we, we sort of would create these portfolios for our clients and they would cover some of the issues that were important to them, but really not others. And we became very drawn to the fact that we thought we could do better. And we got an amazing offer to merge our financial planning practice with a large RIA here on the West Coast called Abacus Wealth Partners. And in 2020, we decided to make that leap. 
and we decided to merge our financial planning practice with Abacus and start an entirely new firm because we had been saying for years we could do better and COVID came and it kind of realigned a lot of life priorities and we said, all right, it's time to take the risk. It's time to make the jump. And I'm really glad we did. 2020 was a really strange year to, to sort of merge one firm into another and start a new company. So I'm glad I got the emotional push from the pandemic. And I also look back on it now almost two years later. And I was like, what was I thinking? <laughs> start a new company in a pandemic. But it's Adesina has been enormously successful. And I'm very, very proud of what we have built. What a journey. I mean, and, and just a focus and a delivery. And, and, you know, I think that everybody, you know, even me, I mean, just listening to this, like that's inspiring to hear the fulfillment you had out of the purpose you had of serving those people. And, and you brought it over to Adesina as well, right? You can do more based on your lessons that you learned. You made an impact and you want to make an even greater impact. Now, tell me, Adesina, great name. Thank you. Where does it come from though? So our new firm is Adesina Social Capital. And Adesina is a woman's name in Yoruba language, which is a West African language. It's spelled slightly differently. A-D-A-S-I-N-A is how we spell it in the name of my firm. But if you spell it A-D-E-S-I-N-A, it's a woman's name in Yoruba. And it means she who opens the way. And my business partner, Rachel, is African-American. And she believes, though she of course, loses records. Uh, she believes that her ancestors were brought from West Africa and her ancestors were Yoruba speaking. And we think it is both a beautiful, beautiful name and also is an amazing way to recognize her, her heritage, but also the heritage of so many African-Americans who can trace their lineage back to enslaved peoples. I love it. That is such a cool background of a name and and it just means i mean it just aligns so much with who y'all are and what you what y'all are doing every day and the purpose y'all are serving and when you when you think about what y'all are trying to do and the impact y'all want to make what is that impact right when you look back at when you look back at adesina and you say whether it's success or not how are you going to judge that impact you know in the in in terms of what y'all are doing and then I want to know how everybody can help get us there, right? Because I think that the purpose is so there. But yeah. what is what is that impact that you want to have, that stamp you want Adesina to put on the investment world mm-hmm. for y'all going forward? That's a beautiful question, Matt. Thank you for asking me that. That's really meaningful. I think the impact we want to have with Adesina is twofold. I think the first is that we want to make change. And we want to make change at the size of the economy. And I was telling my story about how much I loved working with my clients as a financial planner. And it was so gratifying because I could make change in individuals, people's lives. But I want a bigger vision than that. I want to make change at the size of the economy. And that change that I want to make is I want to put the public kind of back in publicly traded companies. Publicly traded companies are really large economic and thus political actors, and their actions have huge ramifications for people and the planet. And we think that publicly traded companies need to be accountable to people who invest in them and all of us who live on the planet. 
And so I want to change the behavior of those publicly traded companies to make a more just and environmentally friendly and clean world for all of us. That's mm-hmm. the economic impact I want to have at, at Asina. The personal impact I want to have at Adesina is I also want to show another way of having a finance firm. I think there are so many small RIAs that do so many amazing things. There's so many that are owned by women, by people of color, who have um, diverse groups of individuals who can work with diverse groups of clients. But as soon as I started Adesina, I moved into another part of finance. I became an institutional money manager. And there was a night study done in, I believe it was 2019, where 98% of all institutional money managers are white men. And so women and people of color are sharing that 2%. And institutional asset management companies are not the friendliest, cuddliest companies. They're very hierarchical. They're very extractive. They have terrible working hours. Most of them are headquartered in New York. Everyone wears ties and doesn't sleep very much. I mean, it's 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 not quite as bad as the Wolf of Wall Street because people aren't that pretty, but it's possibly pretty close. And here I am, my business partner and I were two women. As I said, Rachel is African-American. I identify as white. We're starting an institutional money management firm. And we look at kind of the model of our peers and we say, we don't want to do it that way. And so my other goal with Adesina is to show how successful another type of manager can be and bring another perspective to a space that doesn't have a lot of other perspectives. And we can show that by, of course, the returns of our products and how successful we are. But we can also show that by the success of our firm and the success of the people who work for and with us. Yeah, I love that. And I I mean, I think that, you know, you're so spot on. I mean, the industry as a whole, right? Look at me, right? White male. That's the, you know, that's the traditional industry that it is and it needs to evolve. It needs to change. I remember having another guest on the podcast, one of another member uh, of the 40 under 40 for this past year. And, you know, she's pushing in terms of financial planning to help get more women involved, which we need, right? We need more diversity in this industry, which creates Mm -hmm. different perspectives, which makes us all better. And I'm always curious, right? Because the mission and the purpose is something that I, I believe in and I think is needed. And you, know, you think about like ESG and social investing and, and the likes, and it's, it's a, something that's gained a ton more attention and traction. Mm-hmm. I'm curious because you are the institutional manager that is focused solely on that. What is the biggest challenge mm-hmm. to kind of reaching that potential, right? What is holding back or, or blocking you maybe necessarily to getting to the next level or the next step of it. Absolutely. So I think that there's two kind of main blocks that we have identified. The first one is a block of data. 
And so one of the things that's really interesting that we do at Adesina, and I'll take a side note just for a second. So what we do at Adesina is we create we create publicly traded products. We have our first product, which is an ETF product, uh, and then we also have separately managed account products. But we invest in public markets. So there's a lot of ESG SRI firms that you know, we'll do private placement, they'll do VC, they'll do what they call impact investing, but it's all private. And we invest in public markets. So to invest in public markets, we need to be able to look at the entire universe of publicly traded securities and impose some type of screening to figure out what's a quote unquote good company and what's a quote unquote bad company. And so the first thing that is getting in my way is available data. So in Europe, for instance, there's a lot of metrics that companies have to report on to the EU about things like the number, the gender diversity in their workforce, the amount of pay that they're paying different types of workers. In the US, there are many, many less data points that have to be reported on, and those data points are actually not public in many senses. So they're reported to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, but they actually never come out from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. So what happens in the US is that most of the data on publicly traded companies is self-reported by those companies. And those self-reported data points are fed into large databases uh, like Morningstar, uh, Sustainalytics, those two are probably the largest, There's Bloomberg has one as well. And they're not really third party verified. And so mm -hmm. companies that spend more money on internal processes around ESG reporting tend to have higher ranks. This is a huge problem for people like myself who are creating socially screened funds. And so one of the things that we really encourage at Adesina and one of the things that we've brought to the forefront is that we source as much as possible our data on the behavior of publicly traded companies from community and nonprofit organizations. So I'll give you an example. We work very closely with the American Friends Service Committee, AFSC. Um, they're Quakers. And I was not very familiar with the Quaker religion. They're lovely people of amazing faith. I have learned a lot from them. And Quakers have been abolitionists for a very long time, almost 300 years. They are really, really uninterested in investing in anything related to prisons because they believe that God is in all of us and we should not be physically imprisoning our, our fellow godly human beings. So they had an internal department within the American Friends Service Committee in America that was an economic service department that would help the individual Quaker branches with any money that they had, making sure they weren't invested in prisons. They had amazing data sets that they were that they were keeping. The director of that division, Dov Baum, actually has a PhD in mathematics. Like they were doing a great job hiring and a great job on their own investments. And we heard about this and we were floored. And we approached American Friends and we said, could we actually partner with you to get this data? Because we don't want to use just a Bloomberg data set that says, are you invested in a prison or not? We want a data set that comes from people who care in their hearts about the incarceration for profit 
of other human beings. And we believe that that data, which is run by a, a scientist and is fact-checked and verified, is so much better data. And AFSC said yes, and we ended up working with them to use their prison data in our products, most notably our ETF. And we actually ended up partnering with them and economically providing to AFSC because they are, of course, a faith-based nonprofit organization. And together, we built a data set on immigrant incarceration and immigrant detention as well. So when you look to your communities for knowledge about the behavior of economic forces and publicly traded companies, you can get this amazing, rich, deep, deep knowledge that we can actually translate from community organizations and nonprofits into the financial markets. Yeah, that's just out of the box thinking, which I think is so cool, right? Like, all right, the market's not providing us this data. How do we go find it? You know, I've always said that the advisors that I talk with and firms that I speak with, et cetera, is that eventually we're going to be as an industry forced to change. Mm-hmm. And they go, well, why? Like, eventually you're going to have to adopt more technology. Eventually you're going to have to operationalize your business. Eventually you're going to have to create automation. And eventually you're going to have to adopt X, Y, or Z. And they say, why? You know, why? We've been talking about the next gen, the transfer of wealth for years. We talked about technology overtaking and the need for it for years. But yet our industry and our, our, our business has continued to grow. So if it ain't broke, why fix it? And what's going to be that force of change? And we've talked about that a lot on the podcast. You know, what is it, et cetera. I have my own passion and belief on that. But in social investing, there is need of change. Mm-hmm. And what is going to cause like the Bloombergs, the Mor- Morning Stars and these, the, the companies to provide this data that can be analyzed, right? Like where you don't have to go and find out of the box solutions to where you can do more social investing. I mean, what's going to force that change? Is it just natural evolution over time? As it become, as you get more people in the leadership roles that is more socially forward thinking, what's going to be that change to give you all that, that opportunity to get that data? So I have a really interesting answer for you. And I think some of it is natural. I mean, I think that some of the people who are more resistant to change are aging out very slowly of the profession and they're being replaced by younger people with new ideas. I also have another story, and that's a story about returns because we can't prove it at Edesina, but we will eventually get to, you know, actually working with some data scientists and creating a study. But I believe and I have seen in the products that I have created that social justice movements provide early indicators of financial risk. And I believe that deep in my heart and I have seen it play out over and over again. And in our more social interconnected internet-based world where reputational risk is a true risk and can actually have a pretty big impact on uh, the stock price of a publicly traded company. Looking to social justice movements, which are very tied in to the actions, the behavior, and the pulse of publicly traded companies can provide a very good early indicator of risk and thus performance of publicly traded companies. 
And so even in the, the year that we have had our exchange trade fund that we've been in, in business at Adesina, we have avoided quite a few pitfalls other funds, even other socially responsible funds have by looking to those social justice movements and understanding the interconnectedness of, of some of those social issues. And we believe that they're early indicators of risk. And so I think as we are able to show that companies that have better policies for workers, that have more racial and gender diversity, that pay, that's a big one for us right now, is pay, that pay their workers more, more than the federal minimum wage, that are actually better companies that earn higher and steadier returns. I think that there will be more adoption of these types of socially responsible social justice funds, and hopefully it will also start steering the behavior of publicly traded companies. Yeah, I love that. And I think that it, I think you're, you know, the point about time, I think that that is there. And, I, you know, that's such an interesting perspective on what's going on in the world and that that driving and how companies react to, to, to those events. And, you know, social media is kind of driven a lot of, of change, right? Absolutely. I mean, you look at access to information. I think that there's both good and bad to it, mm-hmm. right? From multiple perspective, I think that, you know, it maybe closed minds people a little bit and not allows open minds as much as needed. But when you think about social media and impact investing in, in, in socially responsible investing, what impact do you see? I mean, is social media going to be, I mean, is that a driver to results for in, uh, social investing you think these days or, or what impact does it have or if none at all, right? But it may create this like whole movement as well. Absolutely. You know, I think that social media, which I completely agree with you, Matt, is very much an echo chamber and I think can be also very poisonous to say for many, many people. What I think it is, is to me, it's another source of information. You know, I I have some schooling in sort of like the Chicago school, pharma French models. And so I believe very much in efficient markets the Mm -hmm. twist on efficient markets is that they take the information this is classic economic theory they take the information of all market participants and when you talk to people from social justice movements and people on twitter they're not necessarily market participants and there's not a way right now in economic models to include information from non-market participants And just because they're not market participants doesn't mean that publicly traded companies are not having a huge impact on their lives. They're probably working at publicly traded companies. They're buying products from publicly traded companies. They live in states where publicly traded companies are lobbying. Huge impact. And so they actually have a lot to say, these non-market participants, about publicly traded companies. Let me give you an example. Tesla is a really interesting company on multiple levels, and it's headquartered here in California, not too far from where I am. Tesla is kind of a darling of many ESG SRI firms and and funds that are climate-based. And we have very strong climate screens in my products. We also have screens around workers' rights and gender justice. And Tesla has some really, really 
really terrible, some of the worst in the tech industry, and even strangely enough in the manufacturing industry, really terrible policies around gender justice, really terrible policies around racial justice. And we, if you just use one level of screening, if you're just doing climate screening, you probably just want to invest in Tesla. But we do climate screening and we do gender screening and we do racial screening. And so Tesla didn't pass those other levels of screening. And when you look at the stories on the internet about Tesla, and you look at the stories on Twitter, which Elon Musk loves Twitter, about Tesla, the story about how Tesla is such a great company that does so much for climate, it starts to fray around the edges. Because you see how, yeah, it might be doing amazing on climate, but it's not actually that much an amazing company. And it actually has some policies that will probably get in the way of it being successful. And so we were never invested in Tesla. And Tesla has had some real problems this year, this calendar year. And I am glad that we never invested in it. And that's the kind of thing that our screening, this this, um, multi-level, multifaceted, interconnected screening can allow us to screen out. Mm. That's really interesting. So I want to shift back real quick to wealth management. And you know, just from your perspective, from the financial planning industry, right? Where what are the biggest challenges facing financial planners and wealth managers? Because I mean, you've now gone from you know building a successful wealth management financial planning company to now running institutional investing, which now you talk to a lot of other wealth managers and financial advisors, right? Absolutely. And you, you, have a, you have a really unique perspective being in the seat and now selling to the seat. Mm-hmm. What are the challenges right now facing the wealth management industry in your mind? Absolutely. You know, it's interesting. I think that's really true for me. Thank you for mentioning that, Matt. You know, I, I did run a very successful firm and now those, my what who used to be my colleagues are now in a certain sense, my clients, because most of the growth that we've had with Addisina products has been with independent financial planners and they're wonderful. I mean, I used to be one of them. They're amazing people. In terms of challenges that I see Probably the top of mind for me is the wealth transfer that we're seeing as the baby boomer generation ages. They are holding on, that generation is holding on to a lot of wealth. They're holding on to a lot of property and they are not aging gracefully. And they're holding really, really tight as they age. And we're just sort of reaching the the first level of those baby boomers turning 70, 75. And we're starting to see a lot of needs for assisted living, needs for supportive housing, needs for families to be really involved in the care of their elders. And the baby boomers are, oh, they're stubborn. They're stubborn and they're independent. And so seeing the emotional ramifications, not to mention the financial ramifications of that, echo through a family is something that I'm seeing a lot of. And so it's not just the wealth transfer, but it's the emotional ramifications that come with seeing mom, seeing dad, seeing auntie, needing more care, potentially having funds to pay for that care, wanting to stay in a home that is not really set up for that and that someone can't live independently anymore. 
it's really heartbreaking and I'm seeing a lot, a lot of that. Yeah. I mean, to that point, that is what I think is such the opportunity in the industry, right? That's mm -hmm. why human is so needed, why technology is never going away is because clients need someone to help them through that. And that's why you need as an industry, we need to work so hard to get connected with our clients' kids mm -hmm. because we need to be there from the emotional, personal relationship standpoint that goes beyond just investment management and financial planning and determining what insurance policy or when to pay off your debt, whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. And I, I mean, I agree with you. I think that's such an opportunity in our space. Absolutely. And just to add on to what you were saying, Matt, something that we had started to do in my firm just before we, we merged into Abacus is we had started to do what we called family planning which is that we would, sometimes we had the, the children as clients and we would invite their parents in to their planning. Sometimes we had the parents and we would invite their children in to planning. And sometimes if we were really lucky, we would get a whole family, like multi-generational family to, to become our clients. And we would create interconnected financial plans and interconnected meetings. And those families who would allow us to do that, we only got we only got a few before I exited that business, but we were so successful. Like just with the families, we were so successful. And the amount of stress and strain and emotional strife for those families that would allow, as you said, that human element and those planners to really be there for such a transition, emotional and financial in their lives, so much more successful. And, mm. you know, I think that's exactly to your point which is what, what we are going to need that human element because for those families going through this struggle, if they can allow themselves to take that professional advice and have that you know, trusted advisor helping them, it's so, going to be so much more successful. The other thing that I see, and, and maybe this is my own uh, bias speaking, but I do see a lot of need and a lot of request for social investing. And especially yeah. with people becoming more aware of our climate crisis and wanting to, you know, do anything they can to stop, you know, the warming of our earth. I see a lot of need for social and environmental investing. And that is a really a need that I see both on the institutional side as something that institutions are becoming interested in, but so much more even from financial advisors whose clients are asking them and pressing them and they themselves are interested in that type of investing. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. I think that the, the future of social investing is, is really, you know, it's just the beginning. It's the early stages of it. And, you know, Addisina is definitely on the, you know, the forefront of where the industry is going from an in investing and institutional investing standpoint. Now I want to ask two questions that are not uh, work related necessarily, because I like to have a little bit of fun on the podcast as well. So I know you talked about your grandfather and how he just enlightened you and helped you understand investing and saving in the markets, et cetera. But what did you want to be as a kid? Did oh you want goodness. to be in wealth management? No, I absolutely did not want to be a wealth manager. I wanted to be an astronaut. I wow. very much wanted to be an astronaut. My grandfather, who I was very close to, was a chemist. He was an inorganic chemist. And he during the Second World War, he worked for the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in JPL in Pasadena. And I thought that that was the most fascinating thing in existence. And the fact that he made, you know, he got to work on making rocket boosters and got to make work on satellites. I loved it. And I was going to be, 
I was going to be a scientist and I was going to be an astronaut. That did not happen, but <laughs> I still, I love, I love space. I'm a little bit of a nerd. Well, I've now like, you have the opportunity to go to space. Uh, you know, I do, except that Jeff Bezos's rocket is so phallic that I think I can't get in it. And I can't, uh, yeah, there's some environmental concerns I have. But conceptually, next, I still want to go to space. next endeavor is to figure out environmentally safe way for us to get to space. I am ready because I would love to go to space. All right. I'm holding you to you it. You cannot see I'm me holding listeners, you to it. but I am like grinning from ear to ear. I'd love to go to space. <laughs> <laughs> and how about you, Matt? What did you want to be when you were growing up? So my dad started in wealth management. And mm-hmm. so I really only knew, I always joked that my cartoons were CNBC and, <laughs> and my days off were in the office looking at premium discounts on closed end funds, et cetera. But that wasn't what I necessarily wanted to be. I knew that that was my option two. My option one was a professional baseball player. I thought that, that I definitely had the skills to do it, but I realized thankfully junior year of high school that that was not going to be my future. Mm-hmm. And I, I quickly adjusted. So it worked out. To, to wrap this up, because you've been so gracious with us with, our, with your time, I want to wrap it up with my final question. We've talked about it a little bit, but when Maya Phillipson hangs it up, right, and, and says, I'm, I'm done, what do you want people to say about you? What do you want them to remember about you? I want them to remember that I was a good listener and that when people told me what was important to them, that I listened and I attempted to make that come true for them. Love that. Love it. Well, you're doing amazing things and you're listening to the trends of where the markets and the the industry is going. And I think that that is incredible. And I know that a lot of our listeners are going to find that to be really incredible as well. So, you know, how can our listeners find more and follow you, follow Adesina, get in touch? What's the best ways for our listeners to uh, stay engaged with what y'all are doing? I think probably the easiest and best way is to go to our website. It's adasina, A-D-A-S-I-N-A dot com. I'm really proud of our website. It's also, it's informative, but it's also very visually beautiful, which is important to me. You can find us on Twitter at adasina. You can find me on Twitter at Maya Phillipson. And if you go to our website, we have a delightful newsletter. We promise we won't spam you. Uh, but you can see all of the interesting articles that are written about our approach to investing. You can see darling pictures of us and our cat, and you can learn a lot more about our products and um, social justice investing in general. I love it. Maya Philipson, thank you so much for your time, your candor, and this conversation. It's impactful and on multiple fronts. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Matt. And congratulations again on your 40 under 40 life. Thank you. You as well. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Bridging the Gap. Don't forget to give us a rating and let us know what you think. 